Samuel chapter 11. In the church Bible, that's page 314, and in the large print, 482. Second Samuel 11, and we'll read the whole of this chapter. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. And he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, why haven't haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front, where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? 
Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in, in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. It would be nice if David's story had ended with 2 Samuel chapter 10. That would have left us with an impressive picture of David. We met him back in 1 Samuel. He was only a shepherd boy then. But God chose him as the future king. And we watched David become a giant killer. He trusted God's power and he took out Goliath with a stone. And when King Saul's jealousy forced David to live as an outlaw, twice we saw David in a position to kill Saul. But he wouldn't do it. God had put Saul on the throne and David was not going to seize the throne. In fact, when Saul eventually died, David wrote a tribute song at the start of 2 Samuel. He wrote a song for Saul and Jonathan, How the Mighty Have Fallen. Even in death, David refused to disrespect Saul. And when David became king, we just knew he wasn't going to be like Saul. Saul had fought always for Saul. Saul had worked to build his own power and hold on to his own power. But we were told this about David. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David knew why God had brought him from taking care of sheep to be the king of Israel. David knew he wasn't king for his own sake. He was king for Israel's sake. He was to care for Israel like he'd cared for his father's sheep. And in the first big challenge David faced as king, he set out his stall right away. When the Philistines came to attack Israel, we were told David inquired of the Lord. 
He wasn't going to be a king who did things his own way. He was going to listen to God and obey God. David was going to be God's instrument. And over the last couple of weeks in chapters 9 and 10, we've seen David showing God's kindness to his enemies. First to Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, and then to Hanun, king of the Ammonites. David is a different kind of king. He's impressive. And as we've looked at David's kingdom, we've seen so many glimpses of God's kingdom. So it would be nice if David's story had ended at chapter 10. Because in chapter 11, that impressive picture disappears down the toilet. Or to put it another way, the train that was running so smoothly up to chapter 10 comes off the rails in chapter 11. So let's look at this more closely. And we'll see this is both a warning to us and it's a reason for us to look for a greater king than David. First of all, in this passage, we're told about the sin. In the NIV, verse 1 says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. That's not the most helpful translation because it gives the impression kings at this time sat around every year waiting for the first tulips to appear and then they called in their generals and said, okay, who are we going to fight this year? But that's not what verse 1 is telling us. A more helpful translation would be in the spring at the time when the kings had marched out. Verse 1 is not telling us what kings in general did. It's talking about the kings mentioned in chapter 10. The ones we heard about last week. Chapter 10 told us the Ammonites led by Hanun, the Arameans led by Hadadezer, and a bunch of other kings, all marched out against Israel. And that resulted in a couple of battles. In the first, the Ammonites fled and hid in their city, Rabbah. And in the second battle, the Arameans were badly defeated by Israel. That's where chapter 10 ended. Now chapter 11 reminds us there's unfinished business to be sorted out. It seems that the winter had forced everyone to lie low. But now, David sends Joab and the army to finish off the job. They put the city of Rabbah under siege. And verse 1 tells us David remained in Jerusalem. Now, it would be easy for us to jump to the conclusion David's doing something wrong here. We might think He's getting lazy. He's letting things slip. But in fact, this was standard practice. We've seen it right from the beginning of David's reign. Back in chapter 2, when Joab fought against Abner's man, David didn't go. And in chapter 10, in the first battle with the Ammonites, David didn't go then either. 
He did go for the crucial second battle. So staying out of the fighting is not a new development for David. It's just common sense. The Israelites want their figurehead out of harm's way. They don't want them hit by a stray arrow in the eye. There's no question David's a great warrior, but he's also a beloved king. They don't want to risk him unless they really have to. So unless he's really needed, David stays home where he's safe. And that's the point. David is in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a safe place. The enemy can't get him in Jerusalem. He's protected by Jerusalem's walls. And anyway, the battle is 40 miles away in Rabbah. What could go wrong when David's in Jerusalem? He's completely safe, isn't he? But this passage is going to show us the real battle is not out there in Rabbah. The battle is in David's heart. And he loses that battle. One writer puts it like this. The power that brought David down was not an external enemy. King David was not safe from himself. The walls of Jerusalem were no protection against his own deep flaws. It's so easy for you and me to forget this when it comes to our own lives. We can start thinking our greatest danger comes from aggressive atheism or militant Islam. We worry about society turning against us and hurting us. And maybe we should be concerned about those things. But according to the Bible, the enemy we need to be most aware of is the enemy of our own hearts. If atheism died out tomorrow, if Islamic State surrendered tomorrow, we might be safe from external enemies, but we wouldn't be safe from ourselves. This is what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things. So if you and I are going to worry about something, forget Islamic State. Let's worry about what our own hearts are capable of. That's where the real danger is. That's where the greatest battles of our lives are going to be fought. And that's true even when we have God's Holy Spirit with us. David had the Holy Spirit. When he was anointed king, we were told, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Having the Holy Spirit means we have the God-given resources to win the internal battles. It doesn't take away our need to fight those battles. Having the Holy Spirit is not a reason to be complacent. We are never safe from ourselves. 
Our hearts are deceitful. They're capable of the worst things. And you and I are foolish if we ever let ourselves forget that. We're foolish if we say to ourselves, I could never fail like that. Here in our passage, we have an example of what the human heart's capable of. David gets up, he walks around the palace roof, nothing at all unusual about that. Roofs were flat, that's where you got the cool breeze in the evening. And from the roof, we're told, he sees a woman washing. And we're told, this is a very beautiful woman. There's no indication she's trying to be seen. In fact, verse 4 tells us, this is a holy bath she's taking. God's law said women had to take a ceremonial wash after their monthly period. That's what she's doing. Presumably, she's doing it in private. It just so happens David can see because he's on the palace roof. It's just an accident. She wasn't trying to tempt him, and he wasn't looking for trouble. David could have turned around and called up his friend Nathan for a chat. He could have diverted himself from what he'd just seen but he doesn't let it go. We're told he sends someone to find out about her. And that gives him another chance to walk away because the news is her name's Bathsheba and she's married. That's a key word. She's married to one of David's most loyal, most honored soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. Later on, this book lists all of David's greatest warriors. Uriah makes the top 40. So David knows this man. This is his second chance to walk away. Now he really should call Nathan and say, I had this stupid thing. I saw something I shouldn't. And I even had someone go and ask about her. Can you believe I did that? Will you help me to make sure I leave this alone? But that's not what happens. Instead, David dives right in. Verse 4 presents it like that. He doesn't stop to think. It's all very snappy. He sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. She went back home. Just like that. And for the rest of his life... David will be dealing with the fallout from those few hours. At this point in his life, David has been experiencing massive success and blessing. His people love him. His enemies fear him. His kingdom is thriving. But he's just suffered his greatest defeat. He lost the battle in his own heart. And a few weeks later, he gets some news from Bathsheba. She only speaks once in this whole incident. And we have no idea what she thinks about all this. But she sends David a message. I'm pregnant. 
And at this point, David has another choice. He could come clean and take the consequences. Or he could try to cover up his sin. He decides to go for the cover-up. And we could call this next section the scramble and more sin. David is a resourceful man. He's a quick-thinking man. And now he puts all that God-given ability to work trying to hide his sin. He comes up with plan A. Plan A is get Uriah back from the battle, get him to sleep with his wife, and no one will ever know. Sure, the baby will arrive a few weeks early, but they'll still assume it's Uriah's baby, and so will Uriah. Messengers would have been going back and forward all the time between David and Joab. It might have seemed a little odd that David asked for one of his best fighting men to be a messenger. But maybe David wanted a more detailed briefing from an expert. Everyone knew how much he valued Uriah. So Uriah travels the 40 miles back from Rabbah. David goes through the motions of a battle report. And then he says to Uriah, why don't you clock off for a few hours? Go home and see that wife of yours. What's her name, by the way? That's what David's like, isn't it? He's famous for his kindness. No doubt David slept pretty well that night. But he woke up to be told Uriah hadn't gone home. He'd slept with the servants. And when David calls him in and demands to know why, look what Uriah says in verse 11. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah says, I'm not going to enjoy these good things until my fellow soldiers can enjoy them too, until the war is over. Where did Uriah learn that kind of camaraderie? Where did he learn that kind of selflessness? He learned it from David. That's what we've seen from David in the past. And so we might expect Uriah's words to be like a slap across the face to David. He hadn't hesitated to make love to Uriah's wife. But David is scrambling now. He's totally preoccupied with covering his sin. So something that should bring him to his knees in shame, it just washes off. It doesn't move him. He decides to give plan A another go. This time with some liquid encouragement. He gets Uriah drunk. But at this point, even when he's drunk, Uriah is a better man than David is sober. He still doesn't go home to his wife. 
David realizes Uriah is going to get suspicious if he keeps trying the same approach. David realizes plan A has failed at this point. And this is an opportunity for him to stop scrambling. He could own up to his sin. He could fall on his knees and say to Uriah, you are a better man than me. Your goodness has brought me back to my senses. But instead of seeing Uriah that way, David now sees him as a hindrance. He's just getting in the way. David thought Uriah was going to be the solution. He would be the one to cover David's tracks. But now Uriah has become the problem. The result of plan A is that in David's eyes, a good man has become an obstacle. David has fallen a long way. When you and I are tempted by sin, one of the lies we can tell ourselves is this. I really want this. It looks so good. But I certainly don't want to live that way all the time. So I'll just do it. And then I'll set it aside. I'll get back to loving and obeying God. I'll get back to being a good friend, a good husband, a good mom or dad, a good helper in the church. But if you're thinking that way, if you're considering some sin along those lines, then look at David. He is not the same person he was before his sin. The decision to sin has put a layer of stone in David's heart. After the decision to sin, the decision to cover it up just seemed like the obvious thing to do. And now, covering it at all costs seems like the obvious thing to do. When plan A fails, plan B seems the only way to go. And the point is, when you or I make a decision to sin, we are not the same afterwards. It changes us. We will not just pick up where we were before. Our hearts will be that little bit harder. We'll be that little bit more ready for the next step into sin. Things that would have brought us to our senses in the past, those things might not be enough to shake us anymore. The book of Proverbs says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? In both cases, the answer is no, he can't. And neither can you or I dabble in sin without getting burned. And the chances are, plenty of people around us are going to get burned too. It's possible there are some of us here who think we are getting away with a particular sin. 
But if you're in that situation, ask yourself, who's paying the price for my cover-up? Is it the people who trust me and look up to me? Is it my spouse, my kids? Is it the people who are under my care and supervision? If we are covering sin, somebody is paying for our cover-up. That's what happens with David's plan B. Others pay the price. David's number one priority is covering his sin. Uriah has become the obstacle to that. So, Uriah has to die. Somehow it seems right to sacrifice this good man. The sin has to be hidden at any cost. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Do we even recognize David anymore? Could this be the same man we read about in chapter 5? The man who knew he was king for the sake of God's people Israel? This is what sin can do to any of us. It twists us until we're almost unrecognizable. Uriah goes back to Joab carrying his own death sentence. No doubt it's in a sealed letter. Uriah is a trustworthy man. He wouldn't open the letter. And when Joab gets the letter, he realizes if he carries out these orders, it's going to make him look pretty bad. If Joab leaves one of his men isolated, it's going to be obvious. It'll ruin Joab's reputation. So, Joab improves on David's orders. The only problem is, Joab's improvement has an additional cost. Instead of isolating Uriah, Joab allows a few others to die alongside him. The result is that Joab's reputation is still intact. It just looks like a bit of a miscalculation, a surprise. But now a few innocent men have died to cover David's sin. Of course, David never intended that. But he did decide to cover his sin at all costs. He can't turn around now and complain about the consequences. And in fact, David doesn't complain. We're told Joab is pretty worried David's going to get angry when he hears about this. David's just an experienced commander as Joab is. They both know those Israelite soldiers could have been saved. And Joab even begins to imagine David might start quoting from the military textbooks, proving Joab had handled it badly. Remember what happened when Abimelech 
got too close to the city wall. But Joab needn't have worried from his own point of view. He doesn't know how much David has changed. David is no longer the king who rules for the sake of Israel. He's no longer the king who does what is just and right for all his people. Now David is all about David. Look how he responds to Joab's messenger down in verse 25. Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. The fact that innocent Israelites have died doesn't even register with David. What does register is that plan B has worked. He's got away with it. Literally, he says to Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. As far as David is concerned, the greatest good is David avoiding trouble. And so this was good, even though innocent people died. All that remains is for David to take Bathsheba as his wife And no doubt he did that in such a way that it looked like a great gesture from a great king. More kindness, taking in the widow of his servant Uriah, making sure this lady wasn't going to be destitute. David would look after her. Of course, if anyone pays attention to how far the birth is from the wedding, they might raise an eyebrow. But who would question a great king like David? And yes, a couple of the palace servants know the truth. The ones who brought Bathsheba to and from the palace. But they're not going to talk. If they did, who would believe them? Who would dare to accuse David? So all's well that ends well. He's got away with it against all the odds. But did he get away with it? Is this really success for all that it looks like success? Well, the last sentence of chapter 11 is the most important sentence. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as we read the Lord's name here, it may dawn on us, this is the very first time he has been mentioned in this whole situation. Someone has said, lust makes God disappear. Meaning, when we begin to entertain the idea of some sin, whether it's sexual or not, it might be lust for applause and for reputation. When we begin to get enamored with some sin, we are not likely to think much about God. And we've seen how that extends 
when we're scrambling to try and cover up some sin, we're not going to think much about God then either. But that doesn't take God out of the picture. And God's view of the situation is the only one that matters ultimately. David may have convinced himself this wasn't evil. He may have convinced Joab too. But God disagrees. David has succeeded in hiding his sin from everyone but God. And so, David hasn't succeeded at all. Next week, we'll see what God does about the situation. But for now, let's remember who has done all this. The sin, the scramble that led to abuse of power, the death of innocent men. Let's remember who this is living a life of complete hypocrisy spouting all this guff about the sword, devouring one as well as another. Acting like he's trying to bear up under this loss of life. When he's the one caused the loss of life. Remember who this is. This is not Saul we're talking about. It's not any of the other villains of the Old Testament. This is one of the brightest and best of the Old Testament heroes. Do we think we are any better than David? Are we stronger than he was? Are we above falling like he fell? No, none of us are greater than David. Every single one of us has the potential to do what David did. Because all of us have the same human nature as David. Earlier we read from Genesis chapter 3. That is often described as the fall. The first man and woman liked what they saw and they trusted their own desires more than they trusted God's word. They took what they wanted and then they scrambled to try and cover it up and get away with it. And the human race has been repeating that ever since. David knew God's word. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder But David trusted his own desires more than he trusted God's word. David thought he was the one who'd get a different outcome than everybody else. He was the one member of the human race who would find that sin turned out well. And every time you and I contemplate sin and then step into sin, we're doing exactly the same thing. It hasn't ended up well for anybody else, ever, but I'm sure it'll turn out well for me. Let's recognize the terrible potential that's in our hearts. And let's do whatever we need to do 
to walk close to God and make ourselves accountable to others. And if any of us have been getting lazy in our walk with God, let's wake up before we fall. Let's allow this passage to be a bucket of cold water for us. And if you are in the middle of considering some sin, allow this to sober you up. Please, don't do it. That's one application we need to take from this passage. But there's another application. We've just thought about how David is like us. He shares the same human nature as us. But there's another sense in which he's totally unlike us. Because David is not just some bloke in the street. This is God's anointed king. The Hebrew word for that is Messiah. If we ever imagined that a human leader could solve our problems, this passage should cure us of that idea. David had the very best credentials a human could have. And he did this. So even beyond the warning here about personal sin, this passage is here to show us a big truth. No human government can solve the problems of this world. Neither can any economist or any foreign policy brain box or any retired Olympic athlete. No pope or pastor can solve the problems either. The best of humanity is capable of this. The best of humanity regularly falls as low as this. Humanity cannot produce the Messiah we need. Our only hope is a Messiah from beyond this world. We need a king who always, without fail, trusts God's word and does God's will. And that's why we light these Advent candles. We light them to remind us how badly we need Christmas. We would be lost if God the Son hadn't come to be our king. We cannot rely on anyone else. We needed him to pay for our sin. We need him to lead us through life. We need him with us every day as we battle our deceitful hearts. So let's renew our trust in him this morning. And if you have been trusting anything else or anybody else, if you've been let down by those people or those things, put your faith in the king who will never let you down. Our last song says, I shall not fear the battle if you are by my side. Let's sing this together.